Hello, welcome to Temple Talk. Before we begin, I need to mention a few things. Firstly, I am not an official representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, nor am I sponsored by them. I'm doing this on my own time and on my own dime. Secondly, every resource I use to create each episode are all publicly available material approved by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I will always include links in each episode description. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about our beliefs regarding the temple and all things, I will also include a link to the website churchofjesuschrist.org in the episode description. Thanks for tuning in, and now for the episode. Hello, welcome to Temple Talk. My name is Camille, and I will be your Temple Talker. And today I have a very special guest, Temple Talker. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Chris Allison. I live in Rexburg, Idaho and teach at BYU, Idaho. I also happen to be the uncle of Camille. Yeah, I'm going to call him Uncle Chris. It's just I come to think of him as an uncle and he is my actual uncle. But also his class was amazing up at Rexburg. So that's why I asked if you'd be on my podcast. (laughs) So today we're talking about temple worship in the Bible. And for all of the references we'll be using, we are referencing the King James Bible. really excited to discuss this. There's so many good things about this, so much symbolism. I do want to start with a quote I found about what the word temple means. This was from The Temple in the Cosmos by Hugh Nibley. said, a temple is an observatory. That is what a temple is, a place where you take your bearings on things. More than that, it is a working model, a laboratory for demonstrating basic principles by the use of figures, symbols, which convey to finite minds things beyond their immediate experience. I think you had some statistics you wanted to share. Oh, I, I've got some statistics I put together, which I think are rather interesting, but brief. There are, as of recent count, 175 dedicated temples, 171 currently operating, four previously dedicated but closed right now for renovation, 55 under construction, 70 more announced, not yet under construction. The grand total... 300 temples. When I was born, there were 12 temples on the earth. That's amazing. And 300 <laughs> right now, somewhere along the process. And since becoming a senior apostle in 2018, President Nelson has announced 118 new temples. That's amazing. I love seeing how fast this work is going. Um, I mentioned kind of in the overview of my, my podcast is about that this work is hastening and temples are becoming a big focus of our lives. And so that's why I'm really excited to cover kind of temples through history so we can put into perspective how we view temples now and why temple worship is so important to to everyone. Um, There are going to be communities getting new temples built in their area that may not have ever heard of the temples of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who may not know what is performed in there, what is done. So our hope is to again, kind of put our bearings on ancient temples so that we can build up to what we do in modern temples and where some of our ordinances came from. So um, we're going to go ahead and talk about what temples are, irrespective of any specific faith or anything. We want to talk about what the word temple means and why they were so important throughout certain cultures. I think you had something on that. The Latin word templum, which is where we get our modern day temple from, meant open or consecrated space. 
the word tabernacle meant a place of dwelling, referring to God dwelling within its confines. So whether it's the portable tabernacle of Moses, which really was a temple, or whether it's the temple that we refer to today, it's an open or consecrated space where we can gather and where God dwells. Above the door of every temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints says holiness to the Lord. It's a sanctified, dedicated space for worship. Um, so why do you think it was important for us to have temples? We have church buildings. Why Why temples? Well, I can think of a couple reasons. First, let me share a rather general quote from the first prophet of the Restoration, Joseph Smith. He says, what was the object of gathering? And he's speaking anciently, by the way, going all the way back to biblical times, Old Testament times. So what was the purpose of gathering the people of God in any age of the world? The main object was to build unto the Lord a house whereby he could reveal unto his people the ordinances of his house and the glories of his kingdom and teach the people the way of salvation. It is for the same purpose that God gathers together his people in the last days to build unto the Lord a house to prepare them for the ordinances and endowments, washings and anointings, close quote. So excited to get into ordinances. <laughs> that will be coming up in some later episodes. We'll be doing some analysis on the different ordinances performed in the temple. But there are a lot of ordinances that we are aware of and ceremonies that were performed in temples throughout the Bible. For example, we know in Exodus chapter 20 that Aaron was washed and anointed before proceeding further in the temple so that he was being set apart or dedicated to do the work that he needed to do. Uh, we also know there are some ceremonies regarding wearing clothing, additional clothing that the priests would wear that would evoke, I guess, evoke images of of authority of the priesthood. Is that a good way of putting that? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay, great. <laughs> um, Uncle Chris is the expert here. I'm just here for the ride. I'm just here for fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, we do know that a lot of the things that happened in ancient temples are things that happen in current temples, which is why this is going to be a great episode to discuss all that today. So if the question is, how do temples differ from meeting houses, uh, church houses in general, our meeting houses are open to everyone, members and non-members alike. And I think in a lot of religions, that's the case also. But our temples are only for members and even then not for all members. There's some age requirements, but there's also some worthiness requirements to get into the temple. Under churchofjesuschrist.org, if you type in gospel topics, you can then type in the word temples. And there's a pretty good entry on why we have temples and what temples are used for. I'd just like to read part of a paragraph there. Temples are literally houses of the Lord. They are holy places of worship where individuals make sacred covenants with God. Because making covenants with God is such a solemn responsibility, Individuals cannot enter the temple to receive their endowments or be sealed in marriage for eternity until they have fully prepared themselves and been members of the church for at least one year. Throughout history, the Lord has commanded his people to build temples. The church is working to build temples all over the world to make temple blessings more available for a greater number of Heavenly Father's children. That's a great quote. We'll be uh, discussing in a further episode, um, Temple Recommends and that and how that comes to be about with determining worthiness. But absolutely, it's even in the tabernacle, which we'll talk about a little bit later, not everyone was able to go into 
the tabernacle and to worship there, you had to have a certain set of requirements by the Lord to be worthy. It is exciting with all the statistics, how fast this work is coming about. So thank you. Um, so I just had this written down. I saw that temples were usually built in the mountains. Um, were there any specific examples as to why that was the case or what's special about mountains that the Lord usually required temples to be built in the mountains? You're right. It, it seems like all throughout scriptures, there's been a connection between temples and mountains. Uh, I thought I'd actually share a few verses or passages in the Bible that refer to temples and mountains. Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the, into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So the hill of the Lord here being a sacred place where we come to commune with God. I like that. In Doctrine and Covenants, um, more modern scripture that members of our church have, it says, talks about the parable of the watchman on the tower and says the interpretation of the tower in the parable is not clear. It may represent the temple that the Lord commanded the saints to build in Jackson County. That's out of the Doctrine and Covenant student manual. Back to Isaiah in the Old Testament, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. Just a thought here. Isaiah is the master at symbolism. And he uses the word flow, that all nations will flow unto it. Flowing usually in physics happens going downhill, but this is a reverse flow going uphill okay. to the mountain of the Lord. So something special or unique is happening. And Isaiah is trying to point that out with his analogy of flowing upwards, contrary to what we would normally think. That's a really cool idea. I hadn't considered that. I also feel when we talk about mountains, it evokes the imagery of a lot of prophets throughout all of the scriptures would go up to mountains to commune with the Lord, even the Savior himself went up into a mountain to commune with his father for the 40 days. And it seems to be a place, I don't want to say of isolation, but of more kind of getting away from the things of the world and getting to spend that time one-on-one -on -one with the spirit. Yeah. And literally mountains, if you've hiked to the top of mountains, you get vistas and views that are just unparalleled. There's a mountain I hiked this last year in Yellowstone National Park, a very high mountain. And I could see for miles and miles in all directions. I could see the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone. I could see the Lake of Yellowstone. I could look in the other directions and see the Tetons way beyond. It was amazing to have those views. And I wonder if part of the analogy here is that God wants us to have some sacred views of things that we will not get in our day-to-day -day lives in the world. Oh, I really like that. That's great. Yeah, this guy's an expert on Yellowstone. If you want to start your own Yellowstone podcast, I'll hook you up. I got the details. <laughs> um, actually, kind of a fun fact. I took sign language for a few years, and the sign for temple is very similar to the sign of mountain. Um, and I really like that, that it's built upon something sturdy. It's built upon a mountain, that mountains can't be moved or changed. Um, and so anyway, I just thought that was kind of a fun fact. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. <laughs> 
So here's a couple others from the scriptures that I like. Moses is called to go before Pharaoh on Mount Horeb. God gives him his errand while up on a mountain. Again, a temple-like experience. In Exodus 20, Moses is called to ascend Mount Sinai and receives the instructions from the Lord and the Ten Commandments. In Moses 1, in the Pearl of Great Price, the words of God which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up to an exceedingly high mountain. Ezekiel, here's another one, Ezekiel 40, verse 2. A heavenly messenger sets Ezekiel on a mountain and shows him a vision of a city where the temple is located. Ezekiel is shown the form and size of the temple and its courts. Matthew 17, where Christ takes Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, a future first presidency, a future prophet and his counselors, Peter with James and John, are given keys and see heavenly things that were very sacred and special to them. Um, First Nephi chapter 11, for those that know what the Book of Mormon is, Nephi says, I was caught away in the spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain, which I never before had seen, and upon which I had never before set my foot. And there he is shown sacred things and part of his future role and mission under the direction of the Lord. So we, there's a lot of examples of mountains being used as sacred places where prophets or disciples of God received their errand and mission. But going back to what you were saying about hiking, one of the things I love the most about the temple, and I think most people enjoy about hiking, is it gives you perspective, being far away and being able to look around. And that's one of the reasons the temples are so close to my heart, is when I have a lot of anxiety or I feel like I'm being weighed down, going to the temple and reminding myself of spiritual perspective allows me to grow and allows my vision to grow just a little bit more and see more of the panorama of the Lord's plan for me. Um, Love that. Yeah. A lot of people like hiking. I'm not a huge fan of hiking, but I do like the views. It's worth it (laughs) every time. So now we're understanding a little bit about the locations of the temple, why temples. And I thought it would be interesting to go into. I don't look forward to reading the book of numbers in the scripture. It's all numbers. Math is not my strong suit. And so I wanted to discuss with you maybe why there are many Old Testament books that focus on the specific measurements of temples and buildings and altars. You have any thoughts on that? You know, I don't know the exact reason, but I do have a few thoughts. Uh, I I think most people would not be really excited if they chose their favorite book of scripture. <laughs> I don't think numbers would be the mm-hmm. book for most, for reasons that you've just explained. <laughs> but I think maybe there's some things we can learn from God specifying uh, measurements and locations of things and what what things would be included in the temple. Um, whether we're discussing Hezekiah's temple or the rebuilding of the temple with Zechariah, Ezekiel's vision, there's lots of details about the temple. Especially Solomon's temple, too. Solomon's temple, yes. Yeah. But maybe part of the answer in a very simplistic way is this is God's house and God is going to direct the building of it. God is going to inform his prophets what should be included, even the size and measurements. This is not to be done simply by men, even with their best efforts. God's in control of how his house would be built, similar to someone else building a home 
the home builder doesn't dictate to the to the purchaser what will be in their home. The purchaser gets to decide what their house will be like and what they want included. So God is doing that with his house. A Latter-day vision about the Kirtland Temple we have written down by Joseph Smith. And I, I, I just want to read. This actually is from DNC 95. After that revelation was given that a house would be built in Kirtland, we read the following from the teachings of the Presidents of the Church manual. And I just wanted to share this. A few days after the revelation recorded in DNC 95 was received, the Lord fulfilled his promise, giving Joseph Smith and his counselors in the First Presidency a remarkable vision in which they saw detailed plans for the temple. Frederick G. Williams, the second counselor in the First Presidency, later recalled, this is his quote now, Joseph Smith received the word of the Lord for him to take his two counselors, Frederick G. Williams and Sidney Rigdon, and come before the Lord, and he would show them the plan or model of the house to be built. We went upon our knees, called on the Lord, and the building appeared within viewing distance, I being the first to discover it. Then all of us viewed it together. After we had taken a good look at the exterior, the building seemed to come right over us. After viewing the exterior in detail, the the building seemed to come over them. This is picking up from the manual now, not quoting Sidney or Frederick G. Williams. And they saw the interior of the building as if they were actually inside it. Later, when the temple was nearing completion, Frederick G. Williams said that it looked like the model that he had seen in vision to the smallest detail and that he could not tell a difference. The building, he said, seemed to coincide with what I there saw to a minutia. So cool. Beaming the whole time. I love that story. Um, if anyone's interested, honestly, the Saints books have some amazing resources and tellings of these different visions, which is spectacular. When I was looking ahead at the God's specific measurements for the tabernacle, too, I think it, it absolutely, building off what Uncle Chris said, is that it is his home. But he also requires a certain degree of faithfulness and sacrifice of those who are building the temple. It wasn't, oh, we could throw a foot here or there. It had to be exact. And I think the Lord often demands or requires us to have exact obedience in his commandments. There's not a lot of wiggle room for what if, what if that, um, that when we follow his word, we're doing what he wants us to do. And we'll be able to create something really beautiful out of our lives that we wouldn't be able to create otherwise. And it really is amazing. Just going back to the vision the early saints were just not these expert woodworkers. They didn't have these incredible building architectural skills, and yet they built one of the most beautiful buildings with what they had. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of resources. It's just amazing to me. That's a testament to me that these saints were blessed by the hand of the Lord. I don't think they could have done it otherwise. I agree. So a question that I had is, how could people be worthy to enter the temple? Was there prerequisites for someone to enter the temple? We discussed a little bit about how not every member can access temples currently due to age and worthiness. Yeah, anciently, by the way, anyone could enter the outer courtyard, which was actually considered part of the temple. It wasn't part of the edifice, the building, but the temple began with the outer courtyard and anyone could come into that part. Even at the time of Christ, the courtyard was sometimes referred to as the courtyard of the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Anyone was able to come into that part of the temple. But after that, 
then there were requirements of worthiness of membership to go in. Uh, anciently, only the Levites would go in. They were the priesthood holders, and they were the ones that would officiate within the temple. The public just wouldn't go in. Today, it's a little different because members of the church who are at least 11 years old can begin to participate in temple ordinances. The youth, when they're young, like 11-year-olds, will not participate in all the ordinances of the temple, but they can do what we call baptisms for the dead and confirmations for the dead. We believe in the church there are saving ordinances that all of God's children must have. And for those that never had the chance or were not members of our church, we perform those ordinances in behalf of our deceased ancestors. But again, back to the worthiness, there are 15 questions that a bishop will ask a candidate, a member of his ward or congregation, and they must be able to be worthy in all those areas to then progress on to have another interview with a member of the stake presidency. And the stake presidency is over multiple wards or bishops. So the interview really is the same, but there'll be two interviews where they're asked the same questions of worthiness. And I'll give you an example of what some of those questions are. The first three questions are about having a testimony of God, the Eternal Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, the next three questions are about sustaining our leaders, especially the prophet and members of the Quorum of the Twelve that receive inspiration and direction from Christ in our behalf. Then after that, there's a series of questions about our personal worthiness, uh, things like being a full tithing payer. In our church, the way temples are financed or built, in other words, is through tithing payer donations. And that's 10% of all of their income annually, all of their increase annually, the scriptures say. And in order to go to the temple, that's a sacrifice they need to be making. Uh, there's a word of wisdom, we call it, which is a health and dietary code. They cannot smoke, drink alcohol, coffee, or tea. Those are the main ingredients of the word of wisdom. And they have to be living that law in order to enter the temple Anciently, there were always dietary laws or commandments that God asked his people to live. And we believe there's a similar commandment today. So there's a law of chastity, being morally clean, not having sexual re relations outside of marriage. Uh, so there's a series of questions that members must qualify for in order to attend the temple and participate in those wonderful ordinances, both for themselves initially and then for the dead later on. When I've been teaching my temple prep classes, we discuss that, and there was an amazing talk by Elder Rasband. I will absolutely link that in the description about being recommended to the Lord and how by going through the questions, even though the questions are the same for each member, that we're affirming our testimony and our faithfulness to these things. And I think it can get the impression with the recommend interview that it's more of an interrogation or more of a you know, an intense interview process that you should be scared of, but it's really such a merciful thing that the Lord is giving those who have the gift of discernment when they're set apart to be a bishop or a member of the stake presidency, that they are able to discern if there's something in your life that is not in line with these things that they're asking. And it's not so much getting penalized for not being fully worthy to enter the temple. It's that the bishops or the stake presidents can work with you 
to help you prepare to make those greater covenants. Not to get, you know, sappy, but with great power comes great responsibility. And when we make these covenants in the temple, the Lord requires a degree of faithfulness that we need to be ready to make those. Uh, The Lord does not want anyone who isn't ready to make those covenants to have those consequences until they are ready and spiritually mature and worthy. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, with the questions on the interview, all members of the church have access to those in what we call our gospel library app. Every youth, for example, or young adult can see what those questions will be. So there's not a surprise during the interview. They can evaluate themselves for worthiness and see if they're meeting the standards of those temple recommend questions. And then once in the temple, Uh, We make sacred covenants with God, as you mentioned, and all those covenants are published by the church also. Anyone can look those up on our church website and see specifically what things we will be promising to God to do in our lives. Going beyond, in other words, a commandment, I'll give an example. One of those covenants deals with the law of chastity. And we're taught that from our youth that we will not have sexual relations outside of marriage. But in the temple, it takes an added step and goes beyond a commandment to a covenant relationship with God that we promise Him. And we believe that when we make covenants with God, He steps in and helps us to keep those covenants. So again, no surprise with the questions that will be asked to enter the temple, and no real surprise about the covenants we'll make when we enter the temple. Wasn't it in the very beginning of uh, the church restoration that the first presidency was required to sign the recommend? That may be. I don't know for sure the answer, but there were so many things in the early days of the church that the first presidency did because the numbers were small that now have been pushed down to stake presidents and bishops. Uh, So it wouldn't surprise me that that's the case. Yeah, all all temple recommends bear your bishop's signature, a member of the stake president's signature, and your own signature. That's the law of three witnesses. Three witnesses are are testifying that you are worthy to enter the temple. Man, I remember at being 11 years old, I thought I was so grown up. And now I see the 11-year-olds in the temple, and they're so adorable and small. They're actual children <laughs> doing ordinances. <laughs> but it's amazing. You see the light in their eyes and the power they have. And it's it's really incredible. I think the youth without knowing all of the the higher covenants that they'll make eventually, they still recognize how sacred temples are when they enter. It's really amazing to see that, them in the baptistry. I think it tells you something about the nature of God, even. In the early days of the church, and I'm talking about the restoration of the church in the 1800s, all priesthood holders were adults. Um, all priesthood ordinances were then therefore performed by those adults that held the priesthood. Now the Lord allows 11-year-olds to hold priest the priesthood. And in, uh, I hope this is okay to say, but my personal opinion is 11-year-old boys are the squirreliest creatures on planet Gosh, Earth. Not great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But how wonderful that God allows them to hold his priesthood authority and begin serving others, whether it's passing the sacrament on Sundays or participating in temple ordinances to help save the dead these young men that maybe are not naturally spiritually inclined and young women, by the way, at the same age can participate in temple ordinances and serve their deceased ancestors. What a great thing to learn and do at such a young age. 
it comes up so many times in the scriptures that the Lord always chooses those, I don't want to say unprepared, unlearned though, but usually people who aren't great scholars and have all this knowledge, the Pharisees and the scribes, he chose people who were willing to be open and to learn and to be obedient. And I think children are usually, for the most part, I think they're very open and very intuitive. Children are very intelligent. I know you have some wonderful grandchildren that it surprises you how how mature they can be sometimes when they're so young. You think, how do they know this? But their spirits are strong. And when you go to the temple, you're feeding your spirit and you're learning more and gaining a testimony. It's pretty amazing to me. In fact, I think children are are naturally wanting to serve others. Little children constantly ask parents, just intuitively, can I help you? They want to participate in helping do work. Now, teenagers, maybe not so no, much. Definitely not. They're the opposite. <laughs> but children want to help. And so while they're young still, again, at age 11, they can begin participating in helping and serving in the temple. Uh, there's no remuneration. There's no pay reward for doing this other than your love for God. And what a great time to teach them that while they're still young. That's really cool. Thank you. So something I want to share too from my temple prep classes is I saw that there's a stairway built up to a temple in Jerusalem that the stairs were purposely built to be uneven. And they did that. So the people who were ascending to the temple couldn't do so in a hurry. They couldn't do so in a thoughtless manner. They had to be very careful about each step that they took. And I think that ties into being purposeful and knowing our worthiness, having our recommend, being dressed appropriately and ready to go to the temple that we can't rush into the most sacred things quickly. We're in a thoughtless manner, which I thought was really impressive. Um, we are aware of ordinances that were performed anciently, um, the one that comes off in the top of my head is priests that needed to wash themselves in a basin or a laver before they entered the temple to be washed uh, clean and ready to participate in temple ordinances. Do you have any thoughts on temple ordinances? Well, we know that the basic premise or purpose of a temple today has not changed from what it was anciently, and it's to bring people unto God. But sometimes the way we perform the ordinances has been modified over time. The wording sometimes of the ordinances have been modified, but the purpose is still the same, that we come unto God. In our modern-day temples, we have a washing, an anointing ordinance. It actually, we call it the initiatory work, and it initiates the endowments. Maybe I ought to pause and talk about the word endowment for just a brief moment. If you were to look up endowment in the dictionary, you'd find something akin to a gift, uh, many people give endowments of money or scholarships to universities. And the universities even call those endowments. They're usually, again, in a financial form of some sort. In the temple, we believe we receive a gift from God, an endowment from Him that allows us to come back and be with Him for eternity. And as mentioned earlier, there are some saving ordinances, we believe, are required in order to allow that to happen, such as baptism, confirmation for the men receiving the Melchizedek priesthood, and then the endowment that we're talking about right now is considered one of those saving ordinances, and then also marriage for time and all eternity. So those purposes are eternal. We believe every one of God's children need to provide it, be provided with those opportunities, and that's why we do work for the dead. 
because many simply never had the chance during mortality to receive those saving ordinances. But the washing and anointing is akin to what was being done anciently in the tabernacle or the temples where they would wash and become ritualistically or symbolically clean before God. We know spiritually that happens through repentance and baptism. So we have a washing and anointing phase in the temple as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's an instruction of, or it's a time of learning too. I think that's one yes. more learning house of instruction is what we call the rooms of instruction. Um, I'd like to include, unless you wanted to have, did you have something you wanted to say? Well, I was just going to mention too, I've, I've been blessed to be able to travel all over the world in my life. Uh, I love to visit houses of worship, places where other people worship and learn. I've a, I've been able to attend Mass at St. Peter's Basilica and St. John in Lateran. St. John in Lateran is the Pope's church, actually. And I've been able to attend synagogue on multiple occasions, many Pentecostal churches, Reformation churches. Uh, sometimes other churches will build grand, ma- magnificent structures that are huge and kind of overwhelm the senses. And that was the intent often is to awe the senses. One thing that's different about our temples, even though some of them are fairly large, you mentioned rooms of instruction. They're they're not hollow from the ground floor up to 10 stories. There's floors and rooms of instruction and ordinances, and it's all built for a reason. And it's not to overwhelm the senses with grandeur physically. It's to prepare saints that are living to receive saving ordinances and to prepare us to help those that are deceased that need those saving ordinances. I love that. There's a lot of amazing details in in the temples about the way that the door was facing um, and things like that, where there was specific East symbolism, West symbolism that are very purposeful. There's so many symbols in the temple, which is an episode. We'll definitely cover a lot of the great symbols. It's pretty amazing. Um, But purposeful is how I would describe the house of the Lord. An aspect that has been very important through all churches, all religions, are altars. And we know from the Old Testament that Adam was instructed to build an altar. And so I thought I'd share this quote that I have about altars. For both ancient and Latter-day Saints, the altars in the temple is the place for making and sealing covenants, the place of God's presence, the place of prayer, and the place of sacrifice. The altar is a place where we offer up our whole souls to God as we strive for greater intimacy and devotion. It is a place where our will is completely consumed by the fire of obedience and consecration. It is a place where we allow God to be sovereign in our lives, to rule and reign in our hearts. It is where the sacred ordinance of marriage is performed, reminding us that a successful eternal marriage must include personal sacrifice. We know that a lot of the Old Testament talks about the animal sacrifices that were performed. Do you have any thoughts about sacrifices and that that ceremony that was performed. So there's another good example of what they did anciently is a little different, the ritualistic part of it from what we do today. Anciently, in the Old Testament and even up into the New Testament, they would make animal sacrifices for various reasons. Today, we don't do any killing of animals in our temples, but we still believe in the eternal law of sacrifice. Instead of sacrificing animals, we believe the Savior has revealed to us that the sacrifice we need to make 
is one of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. We sacrifice for God. We can sacrifice time, talents, our means, potentially anything God wants of us. We should be willing to lay on the altar today instead of an actual animal. And they were commanded, the children of Israel, to make those sacrifices in remembrance of what the Savior, Jesus Christ, was going to do when he was going to be sacrificed, which is why there were so many specific requirements for the type of animals that could be sacrificed, firstborn without blemish. Um, And that was the way to remind them of the Savior. And I don't think the symbolism has necessarily changed that altars are still a symbol of what our Savior has done for us. And because of that sacrifice, that we're able to sacrifice our ourselves, our willingness, and um, getting to know God and draw closer to Him. Yeah, go ahead. Can sorry. I share a scripture? Yes, please do. This is from Doctrine and Covenant section 128 about sacrifices and the, the kind of sacrifices we make in the temple. And picking up partway through verse 24, it says, talks about the sons of Levi will offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now think again, anciently the sons of Levi would have done that through killing of animals, animal sacrifice. But notice what God is asking for in the latter days when it comes to temple workers, priesthood holders, for example, sons of Levi. Everything we do, I'll just add here, in the temple is done under the direction of priesthood keys. And those begin with the prophet of the world. So the verse goes on, Let us therefore as a church and a people and as Latter-day Saints offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, and let us present in his holy temple when it is finished a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. In other words, the offering we're making now, rather than animals, is a record of all the ordinance work we've done for the living and the dead, and that Christ will accept that offering when he comes again for the second coming. Absolutely. And referring back to the scripture you were mentioning earlier, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, we tend to think in our romanticized world that a broken heart means something like a heartbreak that's gone really badly. But a broken heart is very similar to, isn't it with horses, that when you break a horse, they're more obedient, they're more open to training, they're able to be trained. And that's very much that what we're bringing is someone that's willing to listen and to make covenants and to obey those covenants. It's not a heartbreak situation. It's that we're we're willing and obedient. Yeah. In fact, there's another verse that that reminds me of that talks about maybe that attitude. Mm-hmm. Let me pull that up real quick. It's in Mosiah 3, and it's in verse 19. It says, the natural man, meaning the sinful man, the worldly man, is an enemy of God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. That's where the breaking part comes in, being humble and submissive. But it goes on, And putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child. Now listen to the next part of this verse, the qualities of being like a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. I think that's a perfect verse to describe what that broken heart attitude is. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's great. So to wrap up a little bit, I was looking more into tabernacles and specifically the tabernacle that was required to be built while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. 
And I'm not going to quote all the things about it. If you want to learn the very specifics, go ahead and read the book of Exodus. You'll find a lot of good things. There's also an incredible video that the church made that walks through a lot of the symbols and purpose behind each thing in the tabernacle. It's beautiful. Like I said, a link in the description. Please check it out. You'll learn a lot. I learned so much. Though there are, I made a few notes while I was looking through tabernacles. uh, And specifically this one is this this thing was it was portable but that didn't mean it was easy to move around and the desert is brutally hot and probably this was not a fun thing to carry around and i think it really showed the dedication that these people had that the children of israel had to worshiping their lord i think it's amazing that after the tabernacle was completed that the cloud the spirit of the lord filled the temple and dedicated it and made it special uh, very similar to that Every time we build a temple, we have an open house where anyone is welcome to come and learn more about the temple. There are, we do ask, you know, they put some things on your shoes to keep the temple clean, but you're able to walk through and see everything in that temple. And then after the temple open house, then it is dedicated to be a spiritual place of the Lord. So it starts off as a building and then becomes a temple through that dedication process. And we know that that's happened in many of the the early saints temples that they were able to see the power was it the Kirtland temple that by night as they walked it looked like it was on fire Mm -hmm. almost which is amazing um and i think that there's a lot of symbolism towards um our own bodies being temples and that when we allow the savior to fill our lives and dedicate us to a greater work that we can shine brighter and that life can be a little bit brighter there's a lot of dark stuff going on right now and i think keeping that focus on that temple, the sacrifices may not be easy. Um, We know the word disciple comes from the word discipline, that there are a lot of things that we're required to do that may not seem easy, but when we do, we're able to be filled with power um, to overcome because of our savior, which is pretty amazing. I also liked something about the tabernacle that they had the place where the shoe bread was there and they would change it every Sabbath day which I think was a great remembrance that the blessings of the Lord gave to the children of Israel with the reigning of manna. I think that was part of their temple worship was remembering the things that the Lord had done for them. Um, And I think that was kind of about all my thoughts there. Um, I just had that the Lord requires exactness and precision in our life. Um, We can't be casual in doing what the Lord commands, but luckily he's provided a way that when we inevitably mess up and make mistakes, that we're able to repent and draw closer to him and to be able to make those corrections in our path. Did you have anything you wanted to say about that? In a conference talk in October 21 called The Temple and Your Spiritual Foundation, President Nelson invites us to set a regular time to rehearse in our minds the covenants that we have made. I don't know if too many members do that, and I'm somewhat guilty of not doing that regularly. I think most members could come up with most of the five covenants they make in the temple and renew every time they go, even if they're doing work for the dead. But I'm not as convinced that most members even really understand what those covenants are. For example, one of the covenants we make during the endowment session is called the Law of the Gospel. And as I have asked members, what does that covenant mean? There's not too many that can articulate that and tell me what that covenant even means. So a prophet is asking us 
to set a regular time to rehearse in our mind the covenants. And then going on in this, this same talk that I've cited, I plead with you, he says, to seek prayerfully and consistently to understand temple covenants. So not just know what they are by name, but to be able to explain them. And I think the bottom line is this. If we don't know what they mean, how will we govern our actions and our lives by the covenants we have made? President Eyring of the First Presidency said years ago that the crucial test of this life, when it's all said and done, when Judgment Day comes, the crucial test of this life will be to see if we'll make and keep our covenants with God. Well, it's hard for me to keep them if I don't know what they are. So we have temples today, we have ordinances, we have covenants we make with those ordinances, and we'll be judged at some future time with the Savior before us, we'll be judged by the covenants we've made and hopefully kept. One other thought here from our current prophet, this is even more recent, October 22, in the talk, Focus on the Temple, he said, He is increasing our ability to help gather Israel. The Lord is, that is. He is also making it easier for each of us to become spiritually refined. I promise that increased time in the temple will bless your life in ways nothing else can. My dear brothers and sisters, may you focus on the temple in ways you never have before. I bless you to grow closer to God and Jesus Christ every day. Love that invitation from a prophet of God. How central to your life is the temple? Do you know your covenants? Do you govern your actions and lives by them? Those, I think, are crucial issues. A, a talk by, given by another counselor in the First Presidency, President Oaks, years ago, called Good, Better, Best. He intimated that we can surround our lives with good things, even so many good things, that we fail to do the best things. And in my mind, the best things are the things that matter for exaltation. I can be in all sorts of civic clubs and be a part of the PTA and attend city council meetings and do innumerable things with my time that are good. But if I'm not getting to the temple, if I'm not making covenants with God or keeping those covenants, in the end, even with good things in my life, I seem to fall short when it's all said and done. Love that. I um, I always find when I'm teaching temple prep, I encourage my fellow young single adults to pray about a time that you can go to the temple. The Lord knows your schedule better than you do, and he'll help you find that time. I think that's fabulous. Um, I wanted to end on discussing after Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon and people were returning back to Jerusalem. They had amazing prophets who strongly encouraged Zerubbabel and Micah, encouraged rebuilding the temple to be the first thing that they did. And I think very much um, kind of with my story of why I came to love the temple so much, that's in an earlier episode, that it quickly became, instead of how do I fit the temple into my life, it was how do I fit my life into the temple. When you start with that foundation of the temple, things will fall into place. And um, that it was so important that they rebuild up that temple so that temple worship could be their focus, which again, focus on the temple, being circumspect in the way you live your life, always striving to be worthy to hold a temple recommend so that if the choice arises, you have a surprise trip to the temple that you could drop by and be able to go to the temple at any time. And I just think all the prophets have promised us as we focus on the temple that our lives will always be blessed. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. Thank you so much, Uncle Chris. I so appreciate you putting up Gladly. with me. <laughs> this is great. This has been fun. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, as always, I'm still trying to come up with a perfect tagline to end my episode, but this season so far, it's keep calm and temple on. So thank you so much for joining us. Hope to see you next episode.